about 200. This is VOA News. Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta was sworn in for a new term Tuesday following a divisive election campaign that included the country's top court throwing out the results of one vote and an opposition boycott. A crowd of 60,000 people packed Nairobi's Kasarani Stadium for the ceremony. Before it began, police fired tear gas to try to control the large crowd gathered outside. U.S. prosecutors have charged three Chinese nationals linked to a cybersecurity company in China with hacking into the systems of three U.S. companies to steal business secrets. Su Song is acting U.S. attorney in Pittsburgh. These cyber attacks resulted in the theft of internal financial analytical communications from Moody's Analytics, the theft of usernames and passwords, as well as approximately 407 gigabytes of data from Siemens, and the January 2016 theft of global positioning technology that was under development at Trimble Corporation. The cyber attacks were allegedly launched between 2011 and this year. They're tied to the Guangzhou Boyu Information Technology Company, which is affiliated with the People's Liberation Army. Victoria State Police in Australia have arrested a 20-year-old man, unidentified, suspected of planning to use an automatic rifle for a mass shooting on New Year's Eve in Melbourne. Shane Patton is the police deputy commissioner. The male is one of our high-risk persons of interest. We have been monitoring him for a very lengthy period of time. He's an Australian citizen and he's of Somalian parents. Police said the man was intending to act alone and had not yet acquired the firearm. In 2014, a lone gunman took nearly 20 hostages in a Sydney cafe in a 16-hour standoff with police before being killed. Two hostages also died in that incident. Britain's Prince Harry is officially engaged to American actress Meghan Markle. A wedding is planned for next spring. In an interview Monday, the prince, who's fifth in line to the British throne, and the 36-year-old Markle described his proposal. Yes, as a matter of fact, I could barely let you finish proposing. I said, can I say yes now? She didn't even let me finish. She said, can I say yes, can I say yes now? And then, then there was hugs, and I had the ring in my finger. And I was like, can I, can I give you the ring? And she goes, oh, yes, the ring. <laughs> so, no, it was, um, it was a really nice moment. It was just the two of us, and um, I think I managed to catch, catch her by surprise as well. Markle is best known for her work in the television drama Suits, as well as for her humanitarian work, and she's also known for campaigning for gender equality. In Washington, I'm Doug Bernard. That's the latest world news from BOA. It is Tuesday, November 28th, and this is VOA's International Edition. I'm Sarah Williams in Washington. Coming up, a suspect is charged in connection with a potentially catastrophic Australian terror plot. Syrian peace talks are set to resume, and Jay-Z will get a lot of attention at the Grammy Awards in January. It's all ahead. Police 
Police in Australia have charged a man with planning to carry out a terrorist attack during New Year's Eve celebrations in Melbourne. Officials say the 20-year-old Muslim man faces life in prison if found guilty. From Sydney, Phil Mercer reports. Investigators describe the apparent plot as potentially catastrophic. They say the suspect, an Australian citizen of Somali descent, allegedly planned to shoot as many people as he could with an automatic rifle at a New Year's Eve party at Federation Square in the centre of Melbourne, one of the most popular locales in Australia's second biggest city to enjoy New Year festivities. Officials believe the man, who's not been named, was acting alone and had obtained an Al-Qaeda manual online with instructions for carrying out such an attack. He also allegedly is a sympathiser of the Islamic State militant group. Deputy Commissioner Shane Patton says officers had been monitoring him as a person of interest since January. The male is one of our high-risk persons of interest. We have been monitoring him for a very lengthy period of time. He's an Australian citizen and he's of Somalian parents. The allegations are that he was planning to commit a terrorist act and that he attempted to obtain a gun to do so. The man was arrested Monday during police raids at his family home in suburban Melbourne and at a property belonging to a relative. Australia's Federal Justice Minister Michael Keenan said it was the 14th alleged plot disrupted by the nation's security agencies and police in the past three years. Keenan said the charges were a reminder of the depravity of the terrorists. 74 people have been charged by Australian counter-terrorism police since 2014, when the nation's terror threat level was raised to probable. In August, police said they'd thwarted conspiracies to smuggle a bomb onto a plane at Sydney Airport and another to set off a device that could release toxic gas. Phil Mercer for VOA News, Sydney. It is time now for social media. Well, today is Giving Tuesday, and there is a hashtag called Giving Tuesday. It's characterized as a new global day for giving back. It calls on followers to help us kick off the giving season and to give back this year on Tuesday, November 28th. So in that spirit, the actor Lynn manuel Miranda tweeted, Good morning. Happy hashtag Giving Tuesday. If you don't have a dollar to give, you still have your time, your focus, your voice. Be generous. Giving Tuesday tweeted, It's about all kinds of giving. Treat a friend to lunch. Open the door for your neighbor. Buy a, co- a colleague a coffee. Do whatever you can, big or small, to spread kindness and the spirit of hashtag Giving Tuesday today. The Sports Network ESPN tweeted, This hashtag Giving Tuesday helped take down cancer and consider making a donation to the At The V Foundation in honor of someone you love. 100% of donations support cancer research and programs. And that's a look at social media. Here are some of the top news stories trending. The Pope calls for unity in Myanmar but avoids mentioning the Rohingyas. A Turkish-Iranian gold trader pleads guilty and cooperates with prosecutors. Ivanka Trump urges India to close the professional gender gap. And President Donald Trump heads to Congress to rally Republican senators on a tax overhaul. Expanded coverage of these stories and more are on the VOANews.com website. This is VOA.
This is Science in a Minute. Japanese researchers found that gamma rays produced by lightning strikes react with the surrounding air and produce radioactive isotopes and positrons, which are the antimatter equivalent to electrons in regular matter. In February 2017, gamma ray detectors sensed a large gamma ray spike soon after lightning struck an area a few hundred meters away. After studying data gathered during the strike, the scientists found that there were actually three distinct gamma ray bursts. The first burst lasted about a millisecond, the second decayed over several dozen milliseconds, and the final emission lasted for about a minute. It was in that third and final emission that the antimatter positrons were detected. I'm VOA's Rick Pantaleo. This is International Edition on The Voice of America. I'm Sarah Williams. Coming up, the Grammy Award nominations are out, and we'll hear all about them. Talks involving the Syrian government and opposition forces aimed at bringing an end to the six-year war resumed Tuesday in Geneva. The brutal conflict triggered after President Bashar al-Assad's crackdown on an uprising during the 2011 Arab Spring has killed close to a half million people. As Henry Ridgewell reports from London, several regional and global powers have intervened in the conflict, and it is they who will likely drive the terms of any peace deal. As the talks resume, the bombs continue to fall. The Syrian Observatory for Human Rights says more than 50 civilians died in Russian airstrikes Sunday on the Islamic State-held territory in the village of Al-Shafa in the eastern Deir Azor province. Russia confirmed its bombers carried out an attack, but says only militants were killed. Since entering the war in 2015, Moscow has reversed the major territorial losses suffered by Syrian President Bashar al-Assad's forces, says Jane Kinnamont of the London Policy Institute Chatham House. So while Russia is now playing peacemaker, it is its military intervention that has really started to create what seems to be an emerging victory for Bashar Assad. Aided, says Kininmont, by a fractured opposition. But for the first time at the Geneva talks, the different factions will be represented by a single unified delegation. They are demanding Assad play no part in Syria's future. Following a meeting Friday in Riyadh, the opposition's chief negotiator, Nazar al-Hariri, stressed everything is up for discussion in the talks. The UN special envoy to Syria, Stefan de Mistura, has avoided directly addressing Assad's future and said the focus will be on working towards elections. Again, Jane Kinnamont. Of course, there's never been a free or fair election in uh, Syria for the, the presidency, so that's seen by the opposition as a way simply of keeping him. Western powers accuse Assad's government of gross human rights violations, including the bombing of civilians, widespread torture and killings. Damascus characterises its crackdown as part of a global battle against terrorism. Buthena Shaban is an envoy to President Assad. Assad is a hero because he stood his ground, he stood with his people, 
He fought terrorism. While Russia and Iran have offered backing to Assad, Western powers, including the United States, have supported moderate opposition groups battling Islamic State. Kurdish forces control swathes of the north, angering Turkey, which has sent troops into Syria. On all sides, war weariness has set in, says Kininmod. The conflict in Syria has been started by local causes, but fueled partly by international intervention. So there's a chance to de-escalate partly because the international powers don't really want to be fueling this war anymore. However, the goals of the uprising in the first place, you know, to fight dictatorship, to have a more dignified way of life in Syria, none of those have been met. The White House says US President Donald Trump and Russia's President Vladimir Putin stressed the importance of the Geneva talks in a phone call last week. Henry Ridgewell for VOA News, London. Kensington Palace said Tuesday Prince Harry and American actress Meghan Markle will be married at St. George's Chapel in Windsor Castle in May of next year. The palace said in a statement that Her Majesty the Queen has granted permission for the wedding to take place in the chapel. The royal family will pay for the wedding. The palace said that further details about the wedding would be released in due course. The couple officially announced their engagement a day earlier, posing for photographs on the grounds of Kensington Palace hours after the announcement. Harry and Markle lifted the veil of secrecy that shrouded their 18-month romance after meeting on a blind date and becoming acquainted on a camping trip in Botswana. In an interview Monday, the 33-year-old Harry, son of the late Princess Diana, said he proposed and the 36-year-old divorcee said she quickly accepted over a roast chicken dinner in London a few weeks ago. Uh, It happened uh, a few weeks ago, Mm. um, earlier this month, here at at our cottage. It's a standard, typical night for us. It's a cosy night. What were we doing? Just roasting chicken and roasting having a chicken. <laughs> trying to roast chicken. <laughs> trying to roast a chicken, and it was just a, uh, just an amazing surprise. It was so sweet and and natural and very romantic. He got on one knee. Of course. <laughs> was it an instant yes from you? Yes. As a matter of fact, I could barely let you finish proposing. I was like, can I say yes now? She didn't even let me finish. She said, can I say yes? Can I say yes now? And then, then there was hugs and I had the ring in my finger. And I was like, can I, can I give you the ring? And she goes, oh, yes, the ring. <laughs> so, no, it was, um, it was a really nice moment. It was just the two of us. And um, I think I managed to catch, catch her by surprise as well. Well, after the wedding, the couple plans to settle in at Nottingham Cottage on the grounds of Kensington Palace, where Harry's brother, Prince William, and William's wife, Kate, and their children live. David Flint, the national convener for Australians for a Constitutional Monarchy, tells International Edition's Victor Beatty the engagement announcement did not catch him by surprise. Well, no, because of uh, all of the stories that have been coming out of the media, it would have surprised me, say, uh, had I not heard of this. A generation or two ago, would this have taken Britain by surprise? I think much more, and you need only go back to... Princess Margaret, for example, Princess Margaret's wish to marry the man that she loved, and he would have been divorced, and that was not thought to be appropriate at the time. And even when younger members of the royal family were in the process of divorcing, like Prince Andrew and uh, Fergie, there was a disapproval of the members of the royal family divorcing, particularly Charles and Andrew. It received a very bad press, let's say. But I think times have changed. Uh, People have realized that you can't be condemned to a life of celibacy or loneliness 
if your marriage doesn't work out, particularly a short marriage, such as the one in this case. And I think it's now generally accepted that uh, you can be divorced and still make a very good wife or husband. Uh, Prince Harry is the fifth in the line of succession. What is his future? I don't think he's going to succeed unless something terrible happens. And uh, as time goes on, it's more likely that he will go further down in the line of succession as uh, William and Kate have more children, as they seem inclined to do. But he's built out his own role. As we know, he played a determined role to become a soldier. He wished to serve, and that was highly commendable because having young men fight for their country is a very good thing. And he was willing to do that, and uh, he desperately wanted to do that. He was rebuffed, but eventually got to Afghanistan and committed himself very well. He soon realized that a staff officer's job was not for him, but he's made a very significant mark in his charitable work, and in particular in his initiative of establishing the Invictus Games, the games for the military disabled, not just from Britain, not just from the Commonwealth, but from around the world, which is playing such a significant role in their rehabilitation. David Flint, he's the national convener for Australians for a constitutional monarchy. Flint said the late Princess Diana would be proud of both of her sons, including Harry's decision to take on roles that serve others. Like William's wife Kate, Meghan Markle will not become a princess, although she may become a duchess once Harry, like his brother, becomes a duke. This is VOA. When news breaks, VOA Africa is there. Bringing you news as it happens. Listen to Africa News Tonight, Monday through Friday at 1600 and 1800 UTC. And our five-minute newscasts come to you at the top of each hour. VOA Africa, your trusted source of information. Hi, I'm Nikki Strong. You love music? How about Blake Shelton and Carrie Underwood? Or Merle Haggard and Loretta Lynn? Experience the best in country music on Country Hits USA. I bring you some country rock, outlaw, a little hillbilly, contemporary, and more with a dash of entertainment news, too. So join me for Country Hits USA on VOA1, the voice of America. This is International Edition. VOA's Border Crossings host Larry London joins me now with some breaking music news. Today we're talking Grammys, which were just announced as far as nominations go, and we're talking Jay-Z, who leads the Grammys in nominations, which is amazing, which is totally unexpected. Everybody, before the nominations were announced, were predicting it's going to be Ed Sheeran. It's going to be the Ed Sheeran show. Ed's only got two nominations. And uh, Jay-Z is nominated for eight Grammys. He uh, nabbed the most nominations, of course, for the success of his album, 444. Now, before you ask, what's the significance of 444? Yes. I thought I would tell you. Okay, good. Here we go. 
Uh, 444. First of all, the number 44, or 4s, are important to Beyonce and Jay-Z, and I'll tell you why. But number 44, that is the number president that Barack Obama was. Mm. And he was very good friends, and is very good friends, with uh, both Jay-Z and his wife, Beyonce. So they, you know, might have incorporated 44 in, in the time, 444. Other things that are connected to 4s, Jay-Z's birthday, December 4th. Beyonce's birthday, September 4th. <laughs> they got married, April 4th. I see a pattern. You see a pattern. Lots of fours there. And uh, so there you have it. So 444 is the name of the new album, which is nominated in the uh, Album of the Year category. It's going up against Childish Gambino's Awaken My Love, Damn, Kendrick Lamar, who's been nominated for everything this past year and has won a lot of awards, Lord's Melodrama, and Bruno Mars' 24 Karat Magic. So let's check out the title track. Here's Jay-Z and 444. I apologize, often womanized, took for my child to be born, see through a woman's eyes, took for these natural twins, to believe in miracles, took me too long for this song, I don't deserve you. Okay, Larry, you might not know this, but why was Ed Sheeran, who's been very popular, had a lot of hits as well as Jay-Z, but why was he sort of almost overlooked this year? I think that they're leaning more hip-hop this year. I can't tell you why, because the Grammy nominations are determined by a Grammy committee. And so there's a lot of votes that factor in, a lot of people who uh, decide ultimately who the uh, nominees will be. But uh, it was very interesting because it is like the hip-hop show this year around. This is the first time for this. Jay-Z has, as I mentioned, eight, and he's the only artist to get nominations in the top three categories, record, album, and song of the year. Other nominees who have a lot of awards coming their way, Kendrick Lamar, and he's nominated for seven. Bruno Mars is up for six. Childish Gambino is uh, also uh, up for two, along with SZA and Khalid. They're newcomers. They're in the Best New Artist category. And uh, SZA just won the Soul Train Award for Best New Artist. Khalid won the MTV Award for Best New Artist. So it's going to be an interesting show January 28th. And this time around, it's in New York at Madison Square Gardens. Normally, it had been held in Los Angeles. And this time around, they're going to uh, New York to host it. By the way, the record of the year category, Redbone, Childish Gambino, Despacito. There's a song you love to hate. 16 (laughs) weeks at number one. Louis Fonzie, Daddy Yankee, and Justin Bieber, who just got his very first Latin Grammy Award for the success of Despacito. He might walk away with a a regular Grammy for a song in Spanish. The Story of O.J., Jay-Z, is nominated for Record of the Year. Humble, Kendrick Lamar, 24 Karat Magic, Bruno Mars. They're all up for the Record of the Year. And if you want to know other categories, I have them. Uh, if not, tune into Border Crossings, and we'll talk about it. One of the other interesting things about this year's Grammys, Taylor Swift, zero nominations. Harry Styles, zero nominations. And Harry's had a couple of hits off of his debut solo album, Harry Styles. So... Very interesting how they made their decisions, but uh, how exactly, I couldn't tell you. Only the folks who voted would know for sure. All right. Thanks a lot, Larry. That's Larry London. He's the host of VOA's Border Crossings. And that's the music of J.C. And that is our show for today. Please visit our website at voanews.com. I'm Sarah Williams. Thanks so much for joining us.
Next, an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. On his recent trip to Sudan, Deputy Secretary of State John Sullivan stressed that the United States remains committed to engagement with Sudan on a wide range of topics, including the protection of religious freedom and the promotion of other human rights throughout Sudan. In June 2016, Sudan and the United States initiated the so-called Five-Track Engagement Plan that required the Sudanese government to cease hostilities in Darfur and the two areas of South Kordofan and Blue Nile states, improve humanitarian access throughout Sudan, refrain from interfering in South Sudan and play a constructive role in regional peace efforts, cooperate with regional efforts to counter the Lord's Resistance Army, and build U.S.-Sudanese cooperation on counterterrorism. In each area, the government of Sudan has made measurable progress. As a result, the United States revoked certain U.S. sanctions on Sudan. But the completion of the five-track engagement plan, said Deputy Secretary Sullivan, is only a first step on a longer road toward fully normalizing our bilateral relations. For Sudan to become a full partner of the United States, it must seek peace within its borders and with its neighbors, and cooperate reliably with the international community to improve security and prosperity in the region and adhere to long-standing international norms, said Deputy Secretary Sullivan. In the years ahead, one measure of the strength of the U.S.-Sudanese relationship will be improvements in Sudan's respect for human rights, and in particular, religious freedom. Interfaith understanding, respect, and the protection of religious freedom and other human rights are bulwarks against extremism, said Deputy Secretary Sullivan. When governments favor a specific religious, ethnic, or sectarian group over others, violent radicalism thrives. The United States calls on Sudan to protect political opposition members, human rights defenders, civil society groups, and the media. We also urge the government to hold accountable all who are responsible for human rights abuses, said Deputy Secretary Sullivan. The U.S. looks forward to working with Sudan to promote a more peaceful and prosperous Sudan, a Sudan that respects the rights of persons of every faith. That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. Good evening, everyone. I'm Lina Hmoudou. Welcome to Health Chat. Each year on December 1st, the international community commemorates World AIDS Day. Advocates say it is an opportunity for people worldwide to unite in the fight against HIV, to show support for people living with HIV, and to commemorate those who have died from an AIDS-related illness. As we are approaching World AIDS Day this week, we look back at some progress and remaining challenges in the fight against HIV-AIDS. So first, we travel to Kenya, where... 
a VOA reporter here on board says there is a sex education that is empowering communities. Take a listen. All right. Oh, what nice. are we talking about today? Sexual health. Ooh. What is sexual health? Uh, not even that. I'll just tell you why I wanted to. Why Nini Washera and Karen Lucas are known as the sex queens of Nairobi. In a rather conservative country, they co-host a popular podcast called The Spread. The project is aimed at opening dialogue about sexuality, providing information on sexuality to people of all ages, focusing specifically on the youth. The platform kicked off in 2015 after Lucas and co-presenter Washera noted that no one was having conversation with the youth about sex. There was a platform on the continent and in Kenya specifically for a sexuality-based talk show. It's the way we were raised and it has a lot to do with religion and um, sort of like um, the religious beliefs that are pushed upon us and being told by our elders that certain things are wrong. But I think it's changing. I think there's a new wave and a new generation of people who are a lot more open. And if we can put a spearhead that in Kenya, then we're very happy to do that. But it's about unlearning all of the things that we've been told were bad or taboo. A wide range of topics are discussed on the show, from sexual health, body image, pornography, and the dangers associated with sex and sexual abuse, to HIV and sexually transmitted diseases. There's many things that can be avoided. Teenage pregnancy, the spread of, uh, and rise of HIV amongst our children, sexual abuse. If we're having conversations with our children about sex and sexuality, then all of these things can be avoided or can be reduced in our country. 29-year-old Kathy Sonia is an ardent listener. Growing up, she struggled with her sexual identity. She had no one to talk to about it. A lot of us are raised uh, to believe that sex is not all more of a private issue. It, it never comes across to our parents talk to us about sex. That never happens. And so as kids, we grew up believing that that's just a taboo. She says the show has helped her understand her sexuality. At the end of the day, the podcast is informative. It gives you informed information or informed knowledge. So at the end of the day, the teenager or the child is aware that, that sex is okay at the end of the day. That it is not a taboo, it is not a, something to be ashamed of, it is normal, it is just like eating. The Kenya Film and Classification Board is the government agency mandated to regulate the creation, broadcasting and distribution of films in the country. The Kenya Information and Communications Act empowers this agency to promote national values and morality. Its CEO Ezekiel Mutua says podcast produced in Kenya falls under the board's mandate. He says he supports the spread, but insists that morality should be maintained. As long as the podcast does not promote homosexuality, he is fine with it. There are levels that uh, could create an offense. Discussions about sexuality in itself is very healthy. I think we need to provide these platforms for guys to talk about it. We can't continue burying our heads uh, in the sand and assume that the subject of homosexuality is not happening in Kenya. It is happening. So I encourage the conversation. My problem would be people who are in it should not use it to create the misleading information that this is uh, the norm or this is what should be in Kenya. I think if they're discussing the challenges, if they want to find help, if they want to find confidence in discussing and finding solutions among themselves, I have no problem. The spread continues to channel sex positive messages. The presenters say they will continue to support and promote young people's healthy sexual development through their broadcasts. Rael Ombor for VOA News, Nairobi.
From east to south, we now travel to South Africa with Anita Powell with this report on addressing HIV-AIDS among teens. Okay, as you can see now... Nampumalela Simulane sees herself as an average teenager. She loves to cook and and loves to spend time with her family and girlfriend. She also has HIV. That last fact makes her part of a growing demographic in Africa, where the United Nations says AIDS is now the top killer of teenagers. The 19-year-old Soweto resident, who was diagnosed with HIV at 13 and believes she was born with the virus, says adolescence and AIDS are a double whammy. But, she says, her generation knows more about the virus than their elders did, thanks to aggressive educational programs. But, she says, knowing the importance of antiretroviral drugs did not stop her from rebelling. At first, it was just something I didn't know that would hurt me or anything. I was just like, okay, it's HIV, I'm going to live. I'm going to live on ARVs and I'm going to be fine. But as time went by, Things started to change, and I do not know why. Maybe it's because I was growing up and starting to feel different now that I had the virus. Teens at the International AIDS Conference in Durban say they need their own space in discussions about the virus. During the conference, they operated a radio station in which teens talked about their particular experiences. Disc jockey Beatrice Peary says teens are eager to talk to each other about AIDS, both through old and new media. We have a lot of feedback, especially from uh, people that are fans of Twitter. People are tweeting to us, people are coming through to our booth, people are listening in. They are like, I want to be on radio now, I want to voice out. Similana's mother, Lindiwe, who is also HIV positive, says parents also need help and support in working with their HIV positive children when they lash out. So Numpumelelo took it like she understands everything, but... She didn't, because after that, she didn't drink the pills well. She calls me social workers. She wants to stay with me. So we did have that problem. Similana attends a teen support group, which she says helps. But she says her mother gave her the most important tool in fighting the disease, her unconditional love and support so she does not have to fight alone. Anita Powell, VOA News, Durban, South Africa. And now researchers have found a new HIV reservoir. Here's VOA's Jessica Berman. The cell is called a macrophage, a part of the immune system. Macrophages are found throughout the body and tissue in the liver, lungs, bone marrow, and brain. After other immune cells have done their job of destroying foreign invaders, these large white blood cells act as the cleanup crew. They surround and clean up cellular debris, foreign substances, cancer cells, and anything else that's not essential to the functioning of healthy cells. They apparently can also harbor HIV. While antiretroviral drugs can drive the AIDS virus down to virtually undetectable levels, scientists know if therapy is interrupted, an HIV infection can come roaring back. That's because of a viral reservoir that until now has been thought mainly to inhabit immune system T-cells, the cells that are attacked and destroyed by the AIDS virus. Much of research is dedicated to trying to find ways to eradicate the T-cell reservoir. 
Now researchers are going to try to have to find ways to eliminate HIV from macrophages as well. The finding that macrophages can harbor HIV despite treatment is published in Nature Medicine by researchers in the Division of Infectious Diseases at the University of North Carolina. Senior author Victor Garcia says it's been known for a while that macrophages contain HIV. What's new is that persistent virus in macrophages also can reignite an infection if treatment is stopped. Let's say that we develop a therapy that is capable of eradicating HIV out of every single T-cell in the body. If you still have HIV in macrophages, then the whole infection will start again. So eradicating the virus from all the reservoirs is what will be necessary in order to be able to obtain a cure for HIV AIDS. Investigators demonstrated in a mouse model that in the absence of humanized T-cells, antiretroviral drugs could strongly suppress HIV and macrophages. But when the therapy was interrupted, the virus rebounded in one-third of the mice. Garcia does not rule out that there are additional HIV reservoirs in the body, besides macrophages and T-cells, that may yet be discovered. I think that in order to get closer to a cure, we need to identify all the possible reservoirs that can reignite infection after prolonged antiretroviral therapy. And so knowing what your enemy is is actually very important in order to win the war. The lead author of the study, Jenna Honeycutt, called the discovery paradigm-changing in the way scientists must now try to eliminate persistent infection in HIV-positive individuals. Jessica Berman, VOA News, Washington. So this is the thing, and it is a reality. Experts, advocates, and patients alike hopes for the day the AIDS epidemic will be over, and that's the hope for everyone. VOA's Carol Pearson reports on the prospects on, of ending the AIDS epidemic. Dr. Anthony Fauci has been working to end the AIDS pandemic since the 1980s, when having HIV, the virus that causes AIDS, was a death sentence. Now people with HIV can have a normal lifespan if they take their medicine as prescribed. Fauci is a world-renowned doctor at the U.S. National Institutes of Health. He says we have the tools right now to end AIDS. What I mean is that we have extraordinarily effective drugs. But recently, those drugs have been shown over the past few years not only to save the lives of the people who take the drugs, but also to bring the level of virus in an infected person so low below detectable level that it makes it virtually impossible for that person to transmit the virus to someone else. UNAIDS reports that 21 million HIV-positive people are on treatment. That's more than half of all those living with the virus. There are even drugs available to prevent those who do not have the HIV virus from getting it. But there are 16 million people infected with HIV who are not on therapy, and many of them don't know they have the disease, so they continue to spread the virus. And that's why, even with the tools we now have, Fauci doesn't see an end to AIDS. 
In order to get a durable end to the epidemic, we would be greatly helped by an HIV vaccine. A clinical trial for an AIDS vaccine took place in Thailand several years ago. That vaccine proved to be 31% effective. Compare that to the measles vaccine, which protects up to 99% of those who get vaccinated. We asked Fauci if scientists can develop an AIDS vaccine that is that good. I don't think we're going to get there with an HIV vaccine, but even a vaccine that's 50, 55, at the most 60% effective together with the implementation of the other advances we have, I believe we could turn around the trajectory of the epidemic and essentially end it as we know it. Another vaccine trial is taking place in South Africa. The results won't be in for a while, and there's no way of telling if it will be good enough to help bring the epidemic to an end. Meanwhile, getting more people tested, getting more people on anti-AIDS drugs, consistent use of condoms, and limiting the number of sexual partners are the tools we have at hand to reduce the spread of AIDS. Both Fauci and UNAIDS say ending AIDS is up to the global community and how much effort and money it's willing to commit towards this goal. Carol Pearson, VOA News, Washington. It's now time for a break, but first, a brief summary of the latest health news with Imutinwan Ijawe. A study finds that cancerous cancerous breast lump are likely to be detected in overweight or obese women before tumor becomes large. Experts say these women may need more frequent mammogram to help them spot early tumors, but more evidence is needed. In a UK study, women aged 50 to 70 are invited to screening every three years. Some women judged to be at high risk of breast cancer are already offered frequent screening. This might be a woman with a strong history of breast cancer. Being overweight also increases a woman's risk of developing breast cancer, but it is, it is, current, it is not currently considered for setting breast cancer screening. The United Nations reports remarkable progress in containing HIV, the virus that causes AIDS. In its latest report, released in advance of the World AIDS Day, UNAIDS says access to treatments has risen significantly, with 21 million HIV-positive people treat on treatment. That's more than half of all people living with HIV. UNAIDS reports that one, some 1.8 million people were, were new currently infected with HIV in 2016, a 39% decrease from the peak of the epidemic in the late 1990s. The UN's goal is to end the pandemic by 2030. Women are being advised to sleep on their backs in the last three months of their pregnancy to help prevent stillbirth. A study of just 1,000 women found the risk doubled if women go to sleep on their backs in the third trimester. The, the study looked into 291 pregnancies that end in stillbirth and 735 women who had, a st who had lived with, who had live birth. Researchers can't say for certain why the risk of stillbirth is increased, but some data suggests when a woman is lying on her back, the combined weight of the baby and the womb puts pressure on the blood vessel, which can then restrict blood from flowing and oxygen to the baby. 
That's the health news for this hour. And that was Imutinan Igushjabe with the news. Now we travel to Cameroon, where VOA reporter Edwin Kinzeka takes a look at what is being done in the country to fight HIV-AIDS. Hundreds of people have gathered here at the Yelwa Junction in northern Cameroon to listen to people living with HIV. Among the speakers is Miriam Anna, who lost her husband and three-month-old baby two years ago. Ceux qui sont dans la zone rurale, quand tu essaies même de les convaincre, plutôt la personne se dit que c'est. She says when she tries to convince sick villagers to go with their babies for HIV screening, they argue they are bewitched by their relatives. She says she knows three men who died of HIV and their wives have refused to take their babies to the hospital, claiming the families are suffering from a spell. Miriam did not have prenatal care. She delivered her baby at a traditional birth attendant's home. It was only after, when she became sick, that she went to a hospital and found out she had HIV. She is now a peer educator working as part of an initiative of the Cameroonian government. In 2016, the government found seven out of 10 women in the northern part of the country were not visiting hospitals when they were pregnant. The government reports about a third of those who did go to hospitals never showed up for their postnatal visits, even if the woman had tested positive for HIV. The job of the new peer educators is to identify pregnant women in their villages and encourage them to get medical care, even reminding them of their hospital appointments. The government says since the start of the program, seven out of ten pregnant women identified by peer educators now visit a hospital. The results of a mother's HIV test take just a day to be known, but newborns need a special screening, and the blood work can only be processed a thousand kilometers away in the capital Yawundi, says Wekan Georgette, in charge of HIV control and people living with AIDS department in Cameroon's Ministry of Health. She says it takes between six and seven months for the results to be brought back from Yawundi, and that at times the results come when some of the babies are already dead. She says they also face a specific problem of women in the north not returning with their babies for the follow-up appointments for fear of stigma. The UN Children's Fund estimates that in northern Cameroon, 40% of HIV-positive children do not receive treatment. Health officials say it is important to begin regular ARV treatment as soon as possible after diagnosis, in northern Cameroon, parents can take their children to Garwa for treatment, but the medical officer in charge of the hospital, Mireille Yaki, says there is a regular shortage of drugs. At a certain moment, changement de protocole. 
Bon, on met un enfant sous un protocole. She says they regularly run shots of antiretrovirals and many parents will stop bringing their children for treatment along the way. The government of Cameroon has begun trials with new testing machines to reduce the time parents have to wait for a baby's test results. While ARV treatment is provided for free, patients are requested to pay for laboratory tests. Moki Edwin Kinzika for VOA News, Gide, Cameroon. Now to Botswana, where uh, VOA's reporter Jessica Berman tells us about uh, HIV-AIDS success in the country. Botswana, with HIV infection rates of up to 25% of the adult population, has moved ahead of other countries, both Western nations and the economically disadvantaged, in tackling the AIDS epidemic. The United Nations Program on HIV-AIDS has called on countries to strive to ensure that 90% of their citizens know their HIV status and that 90% are treated with antiretroviral therapy to achieve 90% viral expression. A new report published in The Lancet HIV has found that Botswana is exceeding those goals well ahead of a 2020 deadline. Botswana has reached a viral suppression rate of 96% among its infected citizens, mostly between the ages of 15 and 49, according to Max Essex, chairman of Harvard University's T.H. Chan School of Public Health AIDS Initiative. The reason, Essex says the middle-income country has been open to letting in international AIDS researchers and clinicians to assist in the fight. Botswana also started the battle early in 2001 with a goal of testing high-risk populations and making sure anti-AIDS drugs were available to people who needed them, even in remote villages. So you can't say it can't be done, even in sub-Saharan Africa, where people have very high rates of, of infection and where there's not a large pre-existing number of physician, aid specialists, and that sort of thing. Countries in the West, according to Essex, are lagging behind Botswana in the fight to suppress the virus that causes AIDS, reaching anywhere from 60% of their HIV-infected citizens in Europe to just 30% in the United States. In the absence of a cure for AIDS, Essex says the UN estimates that suppression of the virus through identification and treatment could result in a dramatic drop in HIV transmission rates. In the way that the uh, World Health Organization set up those goals, they stated that if all countries or the world could uh, reach those guidelines by 2020, then within 10 years of that, um, rates of new infections should go down by 90%.
in the world. Botswana's experience seems to show the validity of that approach, and Essex says he's optimistic that other countries will eventually catch up to it. I think it will certainly take a lot of other countries considerably longer, but I have no doubt that that most countries can reach those goals if they really want to, and I certainly hope they want to. The hope continues for researchers to find an effective HIV vaccine to halt transmission. Without that, Essex says reaching as many infected people as possible and treating them with antiretroviral drugs offers the best hope of stopping the spread of the virus. Jessica Berman, VOA News, Washington. If you are just joining us, uh, you are listening to Health Chat, and I'm your host, Linor Mudu. For those of you joining us late tonight, we are looking at the HIV-AIDS epidemic in light of the upcoming World AIDS Day. We are going to take a short break for more. Don't go away. What's up, Africa? I'm Jackson Vungani in Washington. And I'm Nadia Sami. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to have you on board. This is Upfront on The Voice of America. Listen, let's be upfront. There's a lot to talk about. We need to discuss what's going on in your communities, issues that affect you. Are you involved? Are you engaged in transforming your society? Today, right now, this is your platform. Let us know what you've been up to. Check us out on Facebook. Drop us a line. Upfront is a show where we look at issues that affect Africa's youth. Giving you an opportunity to express yourself as you connect with other youth around the continent. In this interconnected world, we share a destiny. So let us share our solutions to issues like unemployment, education reform, elections, free speech, and many others. Nothing is off the table. Nothing is off the table. Absolutely nothing is off the table. It's upfront Wednesdays at 1730 UTC, Saturday at 1900 UTC, and Sunday at 1930 UTC, right right here on on VOA VOA Africa. Africa. VOA Africa has built a successful, effective social media strategy through Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and other digital platforms. We are responding to our audience on the African continent and in the global diaspora. We believe in the power of connection and interaction to bring you news that is comprehensive, accurate, and objective. We see the changes in technology as an opportunity to engage with our audiences about the issues that affect them. At VOA Africa, we don't just report the news, we help shape the conversation on the continent. VOA, your trusted source for news and information. And uh, you are listening to Health Chat, and that's all the time we have for this edition of the show. For more on today's topic, HIV-AIDS, log on to our website at voanews.com slash healthchat. You can also join the conversation on facebook.com slash healthchat and uh, give us your opinions, your questions and comments about what we discussed today or any other topic that you would like us to 
to elaborate on. And uh, if you have some questions for our expert, we will be happy to share answers. So I am your host, Linong Mudu in Washington, with producer Jackson Vongani and Imutinian Ijabi with the news. Until next time, take care, be well, and strive to make every day a healthy day. African News Tonight, coming up right after these latest world news headlines. I'm Doug Bernard reporting. The eighth round of the UN-backed Syrian peace process gets underway Tuesday in Geneva, but the Syrian government delegation has delayed its arrival until tomorrow. Stefan de Mistura is the UN special envoy to Syria. The government did not yet confirm its participation in Geneva, but indicated that we would be hearing from them soon. The opposition continues to insist that President Bashar al-Assad step down as part of any peace agreement. A Syrian newspaper said the government's decision to delay its arrival stems from that opposition position. Anthony Billingsley, a Middle East analyst with Australia's University of New South Wales, said the Geneva talks are running parallel with a Russian-backed Syrian Congress, along with Turkey and Iran, that seek the same ends. Really what you're talking about is one conference which is effectively powerless, but has the moral authority of the United Nations, and the other one which is effectively reflecting the, the winners in the Syrian conflict. Meanwhile, on the ground, the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights said another government artillery barrage of rebel-held eastern Ghouta near Damascus on Monday killed nearly 20 people despite a ceasefire. The U.S. military Monday said it carried out an airstrike against Islamic State militants in northeast Somalia, killing at least 